Well, good morning. This is, uh, this is Lainey's first sermon out of the womb, so hopefully we get some amens uh, at some point uh, this morning. Uh, well, hey, if you're new with us, uh, really glad that you're here. We're in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, about to wrap that series up, actually. We'll finish that next week, and so if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 is where we'll be spending our time together uh, this morning. Now, one of the ways that uh, musicians and bands, artists can really drum up more interest in their music uh, is through releasing singles. And so there's different ways that they can do this. Sometimes they'll release a full-length album and then uh, maybe release an album with a few extra tracks on it, or they'll take some of their more popular songs on that album and they'll remix them, add maybe a new verse or add a new collaborator or make an acoustic version uh, of that. And uh, I, I don't really see this as much anymore, but back in the day, uh, when everything was still on iTunes, before Spotify really took off, when you could purchase songs, uh, individual songs off of an album for 99 cents, unless you were a heathen and stole all your music off of LimeWire, um, you, uh, a lot of bands would do this thing where they would, uh, when, when a new album was going to be released in the months leading up to the album, uh, they would start releasing a few singles from that album to, to stir up interest in that new album. And so uh, if you paid the 99 cents, the 2 or $3 for those couple of songs that they would release before the album was released, uh, you could get a real preview of the album. You could get to see, man, am I going to like their new stuff as much as I like their old stuff? Is their new stuff uh, as good as their old stuff, or have they sold out? Uh, but you, you got to get this real preview of the album when you purchase these songs uh, before that album came out. Now, we've, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul has just been recentering us on the resurrection of Jesus, talking about how Jesus really, truly, bodily got up from the grave, never to die again. And that's the central fact of our faith and the central truth uh, of all of human history. And now, here at the end of chapter 15, uh, he's going to turn to us and tell us that Jesus' resurrection is not just a bare fact of history, it also means our resurrection as well. That if we trust in him because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be as well. What happened to him is what's going to happen to us. His resurrection both purchases and previews ours and lets us know uh, where we're going. And so let's see this together now. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to get all the way through the end of the chapter, but we'll start with verse 35. Uh, and read down through verse 49. And so starting in verse 35, the very word of God to us this morning, it speaks to us like this. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So two things we see in this passage. Paul shows us that the resurrection of Jesus means real hope for the future, and the resurrection of Jesus means real power for the present. First, the resurrection of Jesus means real hope for the future. So again, in, in chapter 15, Paul's been recentering us on the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, never to die again. Uh, and, and then, as we saw last week, uh, there were some in the Corinthian church who seemed to think, okay, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but we are not going to be raised from the dead. But Paul says that literally cuts the heart out of our faith until there's really nothing left. Uh, if we are not going to be raised from the dead, then we're absolutely wasting our time following Jesus, and everyone should pity us for the way that we've absolutely wasted our lives. But everything hinges on the resurrection. And so Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits of the harvest. Now, what that means is that the resurrection of Jesus is historical. He really, truly, bodily got up from the grave, never to die again, but the resurrection is not just a bare fact of history. It also means something for us. It also means our resurrection is coming as well because Jesus' resurrection both purchases and previews ours. What happened to him is what is going to happen to us because he is the first fruits of the harvest. And that moves Paul into the section that we just read this morning. He says, okay, so maybe you would grant that we're going to be raised from the dead, but someone might ask, well, what is that going to look like? Are we just going to have the same broken down bodies that we do right now? And Paul says asking that question reveals you've lost a little bit of imagination for what God is able to do. He uses this illustration starting in verse 36 of a seed. You put a seed into the ground, metaphorically it dies, and when it comes back to life, it looks nothing like the seed that you put into the ground. Uh, and this is true of many things, right? An acorn goes into the ground and becomes uh, a big oak tree. Uh, a, a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out as a butterfly that looks nothing like the caterpillar. Uh, and the child that comes out of the womb looks nothing like the embryo that they were when they first were conceived and started growing in the womb. And, and so what you have here and what Paul is balancing is both continuity and sameness and, and transformation. In, in each of those examples that I gave you, there, there's continuity and sameness. Uh, even though an embryo is going to look a whole lot different than the child that eventually comes out of the womb, it, it's still the same person. It's not as if uh, something gets switched out for that embryo that can actually grow into a child as it gets later into the womb. Uh, no, like even as it's growing and developing, it doesn't transform into a different person. It just keeps growing and developing in the womb to become that child that you eventually see outside of the womb. There, there's still this real continuity of personhood there, which 
Just an aside, is one of the reasons we as Christians should be pro-life because we're saying that God puts real personhood there from the moment of conception, and that personhood continues. Even as that child is really small and is growing in the womb, they remain a person all throughout that. There's that continuity and sameness in their person. We should be pro-life because Horton, here's a who had it right, a person is a person no matter how small. Uh, same thing with an acorn that transforms into an oak tree. Uh, it goes from a tiny little acorn into a massive oak tree, but, but it's not like that acorn got switched out for something else that was actually able to grow into an oak tree when it hit its ceiling of growth. No, it stayed the same even as it transformed. There was this continuity there. Uh, a, a caterpillar, again, looks nothing like the butterfly that comes out of the cocoon, But it's still the same bug. It's not like a different bug got switched out in the cocoon that eventually came out as a butterfly. And and so you've got this continuity and sameness, uh, but you also have transformation. Uh, Again, if we had not ever seen the process of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly and weren't able to kind of scientifically analyze that and know how that works, we would have no clue that the butterflies you see flying around were, were at one time looked like caterpillars, and that's what they were. Uh, if we had never seen uh, an, uh, the process of an acorn being transformed into an oak tree, you would not be able to get us to believe that a little acorn that went into the ground eventually became uh, a massive oak tree. And if we didn't have access to ultrasounds and other medical technology, I mean, we would have no clue that the child that comes out of the womb looked nothing like that when he or she was first conceived and were beginning to grow in the womb. Who knows what we think they might look like. And so you've got this continuity, but you've also got this transformation. And Paul says the same is going to be true of our bodies when it comes to the resurrection. There's going to be continuity. It's still going to be you. It's not going to be a different person who gets resurrected. For example... Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, the disciples could eventually recognize who he was, and he had the scars on his body from the cross, and and so it was the same person, the same Jesus that went into the tomb is the same one that got out of the tomb, because it's not actually a resurrection if it's a different person, right? But at the same time, uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, he explicitly tells the disciples in Luke 24, hey, touch me and see I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones like ghosts do not have. And so the risen Jesus, he has this real body. He's not a ghost. But yet his resurrected body can do some things that that ours just could not do. There's a story in the Gospels about how all the disciples are in a room uh, that's locked. All the doors are locked and Jesus is not in there. And then he is in there. Uh, he, He seemed to be able to just pass through the walls with his resurrected body. And so there's this vast transformation that took place uh, in the resurrection, and the same thing is going to be true for us. Uh, Look again at what Paul says here in verse 37. He says, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. What that means is that we really don't even know how glorious the transformation into our resurrected bodies is going to be, because Besides the risen Jesus, we have never seen a resurrected and glorified body. We've never seen the end product like we've seen the child and the oak tree and the butterfly. We've only seen the bare kernel, the embryo, the acorn, uh, and 
the caterpillar. We've only seen the initial part of this, this bare kernel. And then as Paul goes on, he begins to talk about different kinds of animals and different kinds of stars and how God has outfitted and shaped them with different types of flesh. And what he's saying there is that God is the one who has created all of these uh, animals and stars and species and all of their vast diversity. And so creativity and resources and imagination is just not something that's going to be a struggle for him. He's not low on resources, and so when he moves to recreate and renew and transform our bodies, it's not going to be a problem for him. He's not going to have issues with that. And so this is where Paul gets to in verse 42, and again, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Our bodies that die and are sown into the ground are perishable, but what God is going to raise up and transform will be imperishable. Our bodies right now are characterized by weakness and dishonor, but one day when Jesus raises them, they're going to be characterized by glory and power and honor. He says we right now have natural bodies, that they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. Now, when Paul says that, he is not saying that our resurrection bodies are not going to be physical and material. That would work against everything that he's been saying up to this point. Instead, he's saying that our bodies are going to be spiritual in the sense of being indwelt by and ruled by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what he means when he quotes from Genesis and says, the first Adam became a living being, but Jesus, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Adam was created. He received his life from God, but Jesus is God. He is life itself, and he pours out the divine life of the Spirit into our hearts so that God would come to live inside of us, and God would make his home inside of us. Uh, And when he does that, we'll have spiritual bodies, bodies that are completely ruled by the presence of the Holy Spirit, not by the flesh. When, When this happens, we'll be fully human in the way that God created us to be, fully alive, to live with and to God. This is what God is going to do for us. And so he closes out this passage, this section of the passage by saying, we've borne the image of Adam, but because of what Jesus has done, one day we're going to fully bear his image. We will bear the image of Jesus. Look, God did not make a world full of sin and death and evil and corruption, but we as human beings tried to find life and joy and freedom outside of him, and when we did that, we ushered sin and death and corruption into the world. And so now all we know is bodies in a world that are broken by sin and filled with the corruption of sin and death and the fall. And so we get this. We, we know what it means to bear the image of Adam. We know what it means to experience bodily weakness, things not working in the ways that they should. We, we know, many of us know, both in body and mind, uh, things not working the way that they should for us. Diseases ravaging our bodies and our minds in ways that we just can't control. We, we know what it's like to have bodily urges towards sin that feel so strong, that feel like they just continue to get the best of us, whether that's urges towards lust, or pride, or sinful forms of fear and anxiety, we know this sort of weakness. Like I know for, for some of you, chronic pain has been a reality for you for years, and, and at this point, it's not a question of, am I ever going to experience healing from it? It's just a question of, how do I manage and learn how to live with it? Some of you have lost friends, or family members, parents, or spouses to 
cancer or a heart attack or a stroke, diseases ravaging the body and the mind that should not be there. Some of you have sustained injuries that are going to affect you and you'll carry them with you for the rest of your life. And and even if you haven't experienced any of that, all of us know what it's like for our bodies to not work in the way that they should. No matter how hard you work out, no matter how clean you eat, our bodies just don't always do for us everything that we need for them to do for us. They just don't cooperate with us. We bear the image of Adam in our bodies, this brokenness of sin and the corruption of the fall. And because this is the reality, God can really do one of two things about it. Uh, The first thing is what many Christians think is going to happen at the end of time, that, that our sin is so bad and our world is just so irretrievably lost that God is going to blow it all up like the Death Star, uh, leave our bodies in the dirt, and take us out of earth so that we can be disembodied floating spirits with Him in heaven forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, the Bible teaches that God is going to get evil and sin and death and suffering out of the earth so that it wouldn't have a presence here anymore and that he's going to bring heaven down to earth and renew and recreate and restore this earth so that we could have life with him forever on this earth. Look, if if God just leaves our bodies and he just leaves the earth in the dust and blows it up like the Death Star, the, the devil wins that battle. The devil wins something that God called very good. But God does not quit on what he made. You see, our great hope as Christians is not to go to heaven when we die. Our great hope is that God is going to bring heaven to us. He's going to bring heaven to earth. And just like He's going to renew and recreate and resurrect our bodies, this earth is going to experience a transformation as well. We see, we live on this earth now, but it's just a bare kernel of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be. Our future is resurrection life with Jesus uh, on, in new bodies, uh, on a new, renewed, and transformed, and restored earth with no sin, no suffering, no death, no disease, all of it gone. And this is what we're promised, and this is what Jesus is promised to do, and uh, the resurrection means that, that all of this, it isn't wishful thinking. Like, this is reality. This is what God is going to do for us. Now, again, we, we just get a preview. We don't get all the specifics, but we do know that this world is going to be a world with no death, no disease, no suffering, no sin, none of that at all. We do know that new creation really is coming. We do know that we are going to bear the image of the man of heaven. We do know that God is going to get all of thing, these things out of here uh, that, that, so that we will uh, not have to struggle against these things anymore. Again, we don't get the specifics. We just get a preview. But if you want to know what your future looks like, look at the risen Jesus, because what happened to him is what's going to happen to us. His resurrection purchases and previews ours, and our future in Jesus is to be transformed from this lowly body into his glorious body to look fully like Jesus and be transformed fully into his image and have life with him forever because of what he's done for us. This is the promise of the gospel. And this is real hope for the future. Because think of what this means. This means that if you trust in Jesus, 
then one day you really are going to experience life, real, full life in the way that God created you to live. Life with no more disease, no more suffering, no more struggle, no more sickness, no more tragedy, no more gone too soon, no more death. And you'll never have to struggle against sin again. I mean, can you imagine never having to wrestle against temptation again? Temptation not even being a temptation because of how filled with love you are for Jesus and because your faith has become sight. Look, this also means that you have not lost loved ones who have died and who have gone to be with Jesus. And the reason that death is so hard is because there is this real sense of separation, this sense of, I'm never going to get to see this person again. I'm never going to get to talk to them again. I'm never going to get to laugh with them again. I'm never going to get to hear their voice again. I'm never going to get there to enjoy their presence again. It is as true and as hard as that is in this life. The resurrection of Jesus means ultimately that that's not true and that's not final. Because for all who have died with their hope in Jesus, they will be raised from the dead and transformed into this resurrection glory just like we will. We will know life with them and with Jesus in this resurrection forever. And this is real hope for the future. The resurrection isn't just real hope for the future. It's also real power for the present. Look at verse 50 through the end of the chapter with me. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, again, he's not saying that we won't have physical and material bodies. He's saying our present bodies right now, marked as they are with sin and corruption, are not fit for eternal life. They need to be transformed and glorified, and this is what God is going to do for us. That's what Paul's talking about when he says he's telling us a mystery. Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, those who are alive, who haven't died but have their trust in Jesus, they're going to experience the transformation of the resurrection as well. In an instant, they won't die, but they'll be changed. They'll be glorified and get this resurrection body just like those who have died in Jesus will be raised from the dead and transformed as well. Uh, the perishable and the mortal will be swapped out for the imperishable and the immortal. And, and Paul says when this comes to pass, the, the hope of the Old Testament is going to come to pass, that death will be swallowed up in victory, and you and I will be able to taunt death, saying, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Now, notice again what Paul does say here. 
in verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That means that the reason that death hurts, the reason that death stings so bad is because left to ourselves, if we die in our sin, we will die eternally separated from God. We will bear his punishment because of that. And the power of sin is the law. Sin had the ability to hold the law of God up to us like a mirror and say, God says to do this, and you're not doing that. God says don't do this, and you are doing that. You haven't loved God and your neighbor like you should. You've rebelled where God has told you to obey, and you deserve to be judged for that. You deserve to be condemned and face the wrath of God for all of eternity because of your sin and your rebellion. And we had no argument. We had no defense because the law justly and rightly condemns us as sinners who deserve to face and endure the wrath and the judgment of God. But that was before Jesus. Uh, In the Lord of the Rings, after they destroy the ring, there's this scene where Sam wakes up and he sees Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, I I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? But there's an even better picture of this in Harry Potter, uh, which just makes sense because Harry Potter way outclasses Lord of the Rings. Uh, Don't look like that. You know it's true. Uh, You Lord of the Rings nerds thought I was throwing you a bone. I wasn't. I was setting you up. Uh, Now, I'm going to spoil the ending here if you haven't read it yet, so I'm sorry about that. Hopefully this will encourage you to read it, though. But uh, in the seventh and last book of the the Harry Potter books, uh, they... Uh, Harry and his friends go to Godric's Hollow, the cemetery where Harry's parents are buried, and the whole last book is structured around two Bible verses that they see on the tombstones of Dumbledore's sister and then Harry's parents. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then 1 Corinthians 15.26 is on Harry's parents' tombstone. Uh, The last enemy to be defeated is death. And so Voldemort, uh, the, the great enemy of Harry Potter who's trying to kill him, his treasure is power and immortality. He wants uh, to avoid death at all costs, and he wants to preserve his rule and his reign over everything. And so he's trying to get all three elements of the Deathly Hallows so that he can make himself immortal and so that he can kill Harry uh, and not have to worry about him anymore. Uh, but what does Harry do? He, he doesn't do that. He, he gives up his power. As uh, Voldemort is threatening everybody at Hogwarts that Harry loves Harry goes out into the darkness all alone, and, and he surrenders himself to Voldemort and lets the, the forces of darkness and evil do its worst to him. He lets Voldemort kill him. He gives his life up as an act of sacrificial love. He lays down his life for his friends, and he doesn't try to hold on to this lust and ambition for power. He gives up power. And it's actually through this that that Voldemort is ultimately defeated because Harry comes back to life again. Uh, Death is defeated uh, and the lust for power is defeated through sacrificial love and the giving up of power. And Voldemort is ultimately killed and defeated after this. And and this is what Jesus does for us. You see, because again, the, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. 
death was able to sting us and separate us eternally from God and bring us into God's judgment for all of eternity. And sin had the law on its side as a power to hold it up to you like a mirror and tell you that you were condemned. But then Jesus comes, and even though Jesus had no sin of his own, he goes out into the darkness all alone, and he lets the forces of darkness and evil and death and sin do its worst to him. He gives up his life to the darkness as, the, as he pays the price for all of our sin and our evil and our unfaithfulness. He lays down his life for his friends, but he doesn't just lay down his life for his friends. He takes it back up again and defeats death through his death and resurrection. He defeats death because death could not hold him because he is the author of life. And, and, and here's what this means for us. If the sting of death is sin, but Jesus has already paid for our sin in full, what sting is there left for us? If the power of, the, uh, of sin is the law that can condemn us, but Jesus has already borne the law's curses for us in our place and has kept the law's requirements in our place and has given us His righteousness, what power does the law have left to condemn us? None. And that if you are trusting in Jesus, the sting of death is gone. If you defang a snake, uh, it could still bite you, but it can't kill you, right? The best thing that it can do is gum you. This is what Jesus has done with death. Jesus took the fangs. He took the stings so that all the death can do to us now, it can't kill us. It can just gum us. It can't kill you because, look, even if you die... You don't actually die. You're with Jesus immediately, and one day you're going to be raised bodily to enjoy eternal life with Him forever. Death holds no sting anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, all the things that we love in these stories, the, the reason they move us so much, the resurrection of Jesus shows the reason why that happens is because these stories are true. No, not in the sense that the events at Hogwarts or Middle Earth happen, but but in the sense that everything sad really is going to come untrue. The death really is going to be defeated. The death is not final. That death's days are numbered. That we really will know a life free from the curse of sin and death. That we really will know eternity with Jesus, with none of our sin getting in the way of it. And this is real hope for the future, but this is real power for the present. You are freed up in Jesus to live right now with His favor, with no threat of the law condemning you, no threat of sin separating you from God. You will never again be separated from God. You will never be condemned by Him, ever. And there's power to live in that right now when you will live into that truth and live like that's actually true. But, but that's not the only way the resurrection gives us real power for the present. Look again at what Paul says in verse 58. He sums all this up and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It, if, if there was no resurrection, then everything we did for Jesus, it would be in vain. It would be wasted. Uh, every time you tried to be faithful to Him would just be a waste of time. But, but Paul is saying because of the resurrection, everything you do for Jesus is never wasted. 
You see, right now, God is preparing you for immortality. He's getting you ready for eternity. He's cleansing your heart of its love for sin and its love for worldly things. He's making you new and transforming you even now. And none of that work is in vain. Listen, if there is no resurrection, then, then when suffering and difficult circumstances come into our life, then, then they don't mean anything. Like, you just suffer. They're not going to be, they don't mean anything. They're not going to be used for anything in your life. They're not going to be redeemed. If there's no resurrection, when, when you try to be faithful to Jesus, when you just have this kind of normal, ordinary day where you tried to be faithful to Jesus, but nothing really special happened, then you just kind of wasted that day and you're never going to get it back. But the resurrection of Jesus means that God is using all of the suffering and difficult circumstances and mundane acts of faithfulness in your life to get you ready for eternity with him. None of that is wasted. Everything in your life is going to be redeemed. Everything in your life is going to work for his glory and for your good. Every act of faithfulness, every time you say no to sin and yes to Jesus, even when it's small, God sees all of that. He'll reward all of that with more of himself and nothing that you ever do for Jesus is ever wasted. Listen, your life is caught up in this story, this story that ends with resurrection. This future is your future. And so you've got to live in light of that future because this is our great hope. This is really the center of our faith as Christians. Jesus died for our sins and then rose from the dead never to die again and because he did we will too what happened to him is what's going to happen to us his resurrection purchases and previews ours this is why when we confess the apostles and the nicene creed together as a church it's why we confess we believe in the resurrection of the body we believe in the resurrection of the dead we are confessing that this is our great hope that even though we don't see it yet God is truly going to bring it about. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Death is not final and it is not the end of the story and its days are numbered. And so, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Let me pray that we would. Lord Jesus, thank you that for the truth that your resurrection means our own as well. Thank you that you came and you took on our flesh and bones and you plunged yourself all the way to the darkest depths of death and defeated it and rose from the dead so that we could rise with you and we could ascend with you and we could know life with God forever even though all we had ever done was rebel against you, run from you, turn away from you, thought we could make a better God than you, tried to find life outside of you. Thank you, Jesus, that you continue to pursue us. Thank you that you are going to transform us and you're going to raise our lowly body to be your glorious body. I thank you that we get the first fruits of that transformation even now, that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. That though our bodies are weak because of sin, our spirit is alive because of righteousness, that you're renewing and transforming our hearts even now. And so God, would you continue that work in us? Would you, would you help that work? Would you speed up the process of transforming us more and more into your image? 
God, would you help us to trust that everything we do for you is never in vain, even if nobody else sees it, even if it feels minor, it's never in vain. Help us to live in light of your resurrection and the freedom that you have purchased for us. I pray that you would, in your name, amen.